0: Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, Adobe is finally making changes to mitigate zero-day Flash exploits. With the help from Google, Chrysler recalls 1.4 million vehicles due to a software flaw. And then we'll go inside the Business Club, a cyber crime gang. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rockin' roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap, this is episode 226 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on August 6, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and ix systems i'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on our live stream while well, that's power that's powered by the incredible scale engine over at scaleengine.com you should really go check that out my name is chris and joining us every single week is our host the admin the tech and the teacher yeah it's mr alan jude hey there alan
1: hey chris everybody
0: thanks for watching hey alan boy can you believe it is august already the year is just flying by and yes you and know episode 226 it's like That number is too damn high. Yeah, it's it's too much. It's too much. I can't believe it. And you know, it's like, it's like, uh, it's like, when you go to a, your favorite fishing spot, just when they open up fishing season, and they've just stalked the lake, and there's like, the fish are just, like, you can throw rocks in the lake, and the fish will jump at it because they think it's feed, that's this week's episode of TechSnap, because DEFCON and Black Hat are coming up, and there's so many fascinating things going on. Not only that, but then you have all the momentum of all of the regular traditional security issues that we have, so, like, the next couple of weeks of TechSnap are just packed full of news, even though traditionally, August is like a really slow time for the news cycle. But thanks to some of these conferences, some of these big exploits people have been working on for a long time are coming to light. And so we're going to have like a mix of some of that in the roundup, and then we have traditional uh, issues that have just been going on for a while, which it's funny, Alan, our first story, it reminds me of, because, you know, we've been watching this stuff for a long time, and you and I have both been doing uh, IT work for a decade now, and you look back at how we've had major just problem spots, soft spots, if you will, in security, in computing. And it's without a doubt now in the web generation, Flash is a soft spot that just keeps getting poked at. And it really is a plague that constantly provides us with issues. And so is this where we start this week? Tell me, tell me if, I'm, if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that's where we start.
1: Basically. Uh, so in order to help prevent uh, the recent rash of zero days from hacking team and so on, uh, Adobe and Google's Project Zero have teamed up to introduce three new mitigations built into Flash and the browsers that will prevent uh, some of that from...
0: Good. It
1: should prevent some of these exploits from happening in the future. So this could actually
0: so that, help walk back such the amount of crap that we get now because of Flash.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, Basically, a large number of the recent exploits, uh, even like going back a year or so, uh, often are finding different ways to take advantage of this one particular problem, and they've solved that problem now, uh, so that Flash will just exit with an error when the, somebody tries to exploit it, instead of actually letting it uh, execute arbitrary <laughs> code and. Do what a concept, and
0: Alan, what a concept Yeah,
1: so uh, the three new uh, exploit mitigation techniques are being added by Adobe, or to Adobe's Flash player, it, to try to prevent you know, the craziness we've been dealing with. Uh, so there's three new uh, mitigations. The first is the buffer heap partitioning. Okay. Uh, so normally you have this area of memory and you put your different objects and variables in there or whatever. And a buffer overflow or a heap overflow is when basically, you know, this variable is supposed to be this big and I write more to it and overwrite part of the next variable or whatever. So with p- partitioning, where you put some blank space in between the variables and sometimes you can have what's called a guard page uh, and that will cause it to, basically, if you try to do something to that, the, the processor can freak out, or the operating system can. Um, but also, uh, with the partitioning, they're like, okay, some of these types of variables that are really sensitive, we're going to put them in a completely separate heap that's not even near the other one, so that you can't just you know, walk from one to the other. Uh, now, that only gets really powerful if you have 64-bit flash. Uh, mm-hmm. Because with 32-bit, you know, the whole memory space can only be you know, 4 gigabytes, and so you can't put things very far apart. When you have a 64-bit address space, even if you only have 8 gigabytes of RAM, you can have an address space uh, with, like, terabytes. So you can be like, something here, and then leave a terabyte of blank space Uh and something over here. And then, obviously, it's very hard to figure out where that one little bit of flash memory is if it's randomly buried somewhere in this huge address space. Uh, and so that, that mitigation uh, is now available in Chrome, uh, but you it, to take to get real advantage from it, you really want to use the 64-bit version of Chrome and the 64-bit version of Flash. Uh, and if you go over to the, I have the link at the bottom here to the Google Project Zero blog, they yeah. describe how you can make sure you're getting the 64-bit <laughs> versions of everything.
0: Hmm. And, and is there any disadvantage to running a 64-bit version of Chrome and Flash that you can think of?
1: Nope. Uh, I don't know why they haven't, you know, it hasn't been more popular. I think at, at one yeah. point it was because Flash wasn't available with was sixty-four. bit Right, billion, so. and and
0: they only had sixty-four bit Chrome for Windows for a little while. Uh, is this only available? For, so hold on, now this might only be available for Windows.
1: Um, maybe. no, it should be available for all operating systems. Okay, okay. Uh, but it's only available in Chrome currently, but we expect it to be available in other br- uh, browsers sometime they, in August. When which they finally is this catch month.
0: up, right? When all the other browsers well, like, finally catch Google
1: up. Like Google just released this, so Firefox just has to. You know, catch get up. it into the next release, right? Because right, with a release process, it basically has to go through, you know, the nightly, the Aurora build, and the nightly build, and yeah. down to beta, and then eventually it shows up in a release.
0: I mean, not to mention they have all those other Chrome features they're still trying to catch up to. So, I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to out up. I was saying trying to catch up. <laughs> I was just saying stupid if get... version numbers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, uh, want, I want my Firefox four back. <laughs> so the reality is, if uh, if this works. That'll make it harder to do these exploits. I mean, that's something, right? Yeah.
1: Uh, And then we have another one, the uh, stronger randomization of the flash heap. So currently, the flash heap kind of always ends up in this kind of predictable spot. Okay. Uh, With this change, they make it much harder to guess where it is going to be. And they uh, also make it so that when you do a large allocation of memory, that one gets randomized as well, uh, causing it to um, be at an unpredictable location. Uh, So this, uh, you know, the Google Project Zero guys talk about, you know, here's an exploit we had like last year or earlier this year. And the way it worked was we just kept making this object bigger until it was like a gigabyte. And eventually (laughs) we would be able to guess where it was or at least where part of it was so that we could find uh, the code we wanted to execute. Well, now with a big 64-bit address space and randomized locations, good luck trying to find that uh, chunk of memory you're allocating. No in that giant address space. No kidding. Even if you allocate all the RAM on the computer, it, that address space is still so much bigger. It's yeah. like a needle in a haystack. Ours
0: right? calls it no man's land <laughs> in this article. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty. Well, hard no,
1: the no man's land is the uh, the guard page you put in between. Oh. That's oh, the oh,
0: oh, oh okay. Okay. Okay.
1: Now the uh, the so the way most of these exploits work is that you'll have some variable, something that the user can write to, and then after that, there's a vector variable. And the way they store those variables is it has the length at the very beginning and then the the data. Mm. So then you can, it's like, oh, the next x bytes are this variable and after that look for the next variable. (laughs) Um, The way the exploits work is by looking at the thing before that variable, they could make that a little bit too long and overwrite the length and make it longer, allowing them to do whatever they needed to do, you know, to replace that pointer or whatever with the pointer to the exploit. Um, so what Adobe did uh was they basically added a length validation secret. Right. Mm. So many of the recent exploits and previous exploits worked by overriding the length of the variable or the mm. vector objects okay. and then o- overflowing the memory. Uh, so with you know even with the two previous mitigations, uh will make it a lot harder to do that. Adobe still added this mitigation that will detect when that's happening and allow Flash to just exit with an error instead. Uh-huh. So basically at the end of the length, they're going to basically have a hash of the length and a secret. I don't know if it'll be random or exactly where the secret comes from, okay. but it's something the attacker won't know. So now when the attacker writes a new length, they don't have the secret to calculate a hash of that length plus the secret in order to update that, the secret. And so when the secret doesn't match the length, Adobe says, oh, that's invalid. Somebody's been screwing with our memory and exits with an error instead. The short
0: circuits... It yeah. dies. It dies instead and of, yeah, instead of proceeding Exactly. With
1: it exists for the runtime error so the user, you can possibly even know that something weird is happening. Yeah. Uh, and it says, this mitigation is available in all Flash builds on all operating systems starting with 18.00209. Hmm. So that one's already available on every browser. Nice. Uh, so that one should help a lot of these exploits uh, from going forward and we should have to patch Flash a lot Less frequently now.
0: Well, now what are we going to talk about on TechSnap all the time?
1: Huh? <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure the hackers will still find other ways. They just we uh, hmm. just closed one of the bigger doors. Hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think you might be right.
1: Yeah. This uh, so had this uh, had these uh, exploit mitigations been widely available earlier, uh, they likely would have blunted the effects of at least the three most recent zero-day vulnerabilities.
0: Now, uh, Alan Dave in the chat room, I don't know if you have enough information to answer, but he asked, could this also mean that a simple error? could potentially just crash Flash Player now?
1: Um, no. Like, this is something that's, um, the secret and the length of the variable and so on that is actually stored is done by the Flash code itself. Okay. So it's not something that, like, when you're writing ActionScript, you don't even know that this is happening. Right, okay. Uh, so a, a, a programming error introduced by, you know, um, somebody in the, somebody who's writing a Flash program can't just crash the Flash Player you would have to be illegally modifying memory in order to crash it. Mm. And in that case, that's what you want to happen. Mm. I almost wonder if you could implement this in operating systems.
0: Yeah, I was just kind of like, well, I'm wondering now, why they only apply it here. Obviously, it would
1: take more memory to do this, right? For every mm. application, you have to keep this Sentinel and so on. At least virtual memory. Yeah. Hmm.
0: All right, Alan. Well, that's, that could be potentially huge news Yep. that I didn't quite understand, so I'm glad you broke it all down for us. Any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right, Mr. Jude. Well, then uh, I want to take a moment. I want to tell you about something you've never heard of before. I'm going to blow your mind, Alan. <laughs> Are you ready for this? Sure. Brace yourself. There is a hardware provider out there that gives you accurate quotes that will work with you to make sure it's the perfect hardware. They're going to give you a white glove experience. They're going to build these machines and then they're going to test them before they send them to you. And they also support free BSD and open source in general, including Linux and other ones. Can you believe this, Alan? Such a thing exists. It's IX Systems, Alan, go to iXsystems.com slash techsnap. And Alan, I want you to learn about them for the first time ever because you've never heard about them before until I just told you. iXsystems.com slash techsnap. And that's why Scale Engine runs off. Of IX Systems, right, Alan? <laughs> yep. Because you'd never heard oh. of them before until now, right, Alan? Because uh, yeah, 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 right. And actually, I want you to go to my face I, isn't on their website or anything. No, no, <laughs> no, not at all. In fact, uh, if you were over at IX Systems' uh, Facebook page, you might have noticed they recently had some uh, some new photos posted with the new logo yes. going up on the front of the building. Look at that yes. thing!
1: You got the new sign.
0: Now that is sharp uh, looking. I really, you know, mm-hmm. I'm. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give that a like right now. Boom! Just like that, ass. Look at nice. that. The new logo is really clean. I want you to go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They have a white paper over there you can grab. And also, go over to their website and just check them out. Tons of good rigs. Stuff that you could run your entire enterprise off, your virtualized infrastructure, your website, all of that, down to just something for your small business, like a FreeNAS system. We've, get, we've right. gotten some really great emails about people that have implemented FreeNAS for their small business doctors' offices, um, I've got a, I've got actually an, a note from somebody who works at a uh, doctor's office and has a free NAS machine and they've set it up. They can even do, they use Plex and for the patients who are undergoing um, uh, like, uh, I, I don't actually know what, but it's like they've got, they're getting a treatment. They're getting like, a, they have to sit there with an IV and they're getting a treatment and they have LCD screens and they're using Plex streaming from their free NAS machine to the LCD screens on these beds that are built in. They have like an arm with these LCD screens and the patients get to pick their media all streaming from a free NAS rig they have six beds doing it and it just runs like a rock so from like a system like iX systems has like a, like a just op, uh, you. it's like it is like it's literally like you could you could hold it it's just it's unbelievable the size and the power you get all the way up to these huge enterprise class rigs that are just unbelievably powerful or custom-built solutions like Mr. Jude takes advantage of have yes. you gotten your new rigs yet? Not yet very soon uh but yeah, 216 terabytes.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you need like an evil mustache you can stroke when you say that. And like put your pinky up in the air. Like, like. <laughs> That'd be good. Yeah, it really, it's it's amazing, too, because when you implement something based on open source, you know, it's so nice to have a, a hardware vendor who's not going to punt when you have an yep. issue. They really understand what's going on. And not only that, but the rig that's been built is really best in class. So the oh, hardware is yes. great, the support's great, and they're not going to punt when you ever have an issue. ixsystems.com slash techsnap, go check them out. They're a secret weapon. If I had known about them um, a dozen years ago, I might still be an IT contractor. Yeah, because your life would just be so much easier. <laughs> yeah, really? I mean, it's it's kind of, it's in a way, like, I kind of wish I would have known about them a lot sooner. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's not too late for the audience. ixsystems.com slash TechSnap. Mm-hmm. And a big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, Alan, so there's a lot going on these days because, you know, Black Hat and um, and other, con- what's the other one? Um, DefCon are going on, yep. DefCon. Uh, and so, al- along this, a lot of guys are coming out with and groups are coming out with their big, big stories about what they 've been able to do and there 's actually been some real world results from some of this stuff, and I guess maybe we start now with uh, fiat chrysler they 've had a, ra- a rather major recall as a result of yes, some of this stuff they had
1: to uh, recall one point four million vehicles uh, because the onboard Uconnect system uh, allowed cars and trucks uh, equipped with these radios to be vulnerable to hacking remotely. Mm. Uh, for example, uh, some of the Jeep vehicles, you could actually turn the ignition off while it was driving down the highway at speed. Over, what, a cellular connection, I guess? Uh, I think they have a Bluetooth connection. Basically, they didn't want to run wires between the different parts of the computer in, like, the, in the cabin and the other part that's in the trunk or whatever. Yeah. So they did it
0: with Bluetooth. You're kidding me.
1: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> with no security. So basically, if you could just like, drive up beside the thing go bloop, and turn it
0: off. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So, now what, uh, now, so, so they're it, doing a the, recall. They're doing the a recall. The recall includes oh, uh, Dodge Ram
1: pickups, Jeep Cherokee and Grand Cherokee SUVs, uh, the Dodge Challenger sports car, and the Viper supercar. Okay. So, quite uh, a so bit. It's, it's kind of an odd mix of like...
0: Pickup trucks, SUVs, and sports cars. Yeah, I guess it depends on what entertainment system they have, like that yep. that U Connect system, whatever they call it. Mm.
1: Yeah, so this isn't the first time that automobiles have been uh, vulnerable to hacking, but this one's uh, kind of a bit a step further. Ah, but yeah, so apparently the Fiat Chrysler Uconnect uh, infotainment system uses Sprint's uh, wireless network as well, mm. uh, but it's not a Sprint issue.
0: Uh, yeah, so there you go. So if it's, on, if it's on internet, it's got a public IP address most
1: likely. It, it seems like it, yeah. So unauthorized remote access to certain uh, vehicle systems was blocked with a network level uh, improvement on Thursday, the company said in a statement. <laughs> so yeah, apparently they're all linked on a sprint network as well and they uh, uh, put in some firewall rules to stop v- uh, vehicles from talking to each other or something say affected customers will receive a usb device uh which they'll plug into their car and will remotely upgrade the oh firmware. that'll go fine Something. that then there will be yeah. no
0: problem with that <laughs> yeah no yeah uh, so so the, first of all like let's just begin with like the practical issues there they got to have the right mailing address for the customer on file if it's been a few yeah, years what if I good moved since i bought a car right exactly what, what if you, i didn't register where's the usb port you got to describe to the customer where the usb port is that's probably be different for every single make right every single model is going to be different so some of them is going to be in the trunk well, probably, some of them,
1: well no i imagine it. there's almost every car has one in the by the radio in maybe the maybe some of them just
0: you know what my 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 wife's car it's in the trunk so when you have to update the right, maps you have to go to the trunk i mean for hers it's just that's where it's it is doesn't have at. one in the dash to no. plug your phone in nope well that's not very useful <laughs> i i agree i agree it's a it's a little silly uh,
1: i i'm just as worried about my Ford, because it has a Microsoft sync system.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So this is a disaster, Alan. It's a disaster.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, So uh, two Democratic senators in the U.S. have introduced legislation that uh, would direct the National Highway Transportation Safety Authority and the Federal Trade Commission to establish rules uh, to secure cars and protect customer privacy. Um, I'm not exactly sure how you can legislate to write secure software, though.
0: Yeah, this is concerning. Uh, but apparently, the Senator's
1: bill would establish a rating system to inform owners about how secure their vehicles are beyond the minimum federal requirements. Hmm. So, if it's a star system like the crash test rating, I suppose that makes sense. But how do you determine who gets how many stars?
0: Yeah, and, and is that going to be, yeah, who, who, yeah, that's, of course, you'll just like, probably expect. Would it be
1: a track record after the fact? Yeah, and if you're auditing it before the fact, wouldn't
0: anything that's not. The best be bad? Two things jump out at me. Number one is, yeah, it's probably going to be an expansion of the existing safety system now, yep. right? And that means more, more of course, bureaucracy. But number two is it seems like you'd have to have years of track record to really have that data be useful. And in mm-hmm. the beginning, it's going to be either conjecture based on reports or based on hypothetical testing and not based or on… Or an audit or
1: something. Yeah. It's like, well, they're not going to read all the code, so it it's going to be right, like, like PCI DSS and that'll just be a waste of money.
0: I don't feel like with all of these exploits we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks with the Jeeps and this stuff, like we don't actually have a solid sense of the practical risk involved. Like, how do you figure out what my device, what my what my car is? How do you narrow all that down? How do you actually get to my car? Um and what are my Why options? the new Toyota Corolla cuz it has a 5 USBs rating. <laughs> Right, yeah. And what are my options, like, once you compromise my system, could I just put it neutral, turn my car on and off again, and get control again? Like, like, all these things need to be factored into a rating system, and it's going to take a, a, a decade to have yeah. all of that kind of data to be able to have anything of any but use. Also it's they like, have to start at some point, though, I suppose.
1: It, it also seems like, how did they not think of, to have a firewall in the car? Yeah. You know, only allow outbound connections, not inbound.
0: Yeah. Well, that's about saving money. It's a I guess. Firewall.
1: It's not hard to do. You can get them. They're thing called free software.
0: I, I guess that's about money. I don't. I, I can't. I, I can I don't I can't. know. Getting sued because someone died
1: because some, I turned off their car remotely and they lost control because the brakes <sighs> don't work. Yeah. Uh,
0: is kind of worse. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I do totally agree with you there. I totally agree. Hm. It makes you think, though. Yep. How could they legislate this? I can't I can't fathom it to be honest with you. But yep, yep. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that story Mr. Jude? Uh no, that's about it. All right. Well, then I'll tell you about uh, my good friends over at Ting. Go to techsnap.ting.com. My cell provider now for over 2 years. Uh, we have a lot of folks now in the JB Crew using Ting. Rekai, our editor, uses it. Noah is a Ting customer. Uh, I believe producer Q5sys is a Ting customer. Uh, Angela is a Ting customer. I have our nanny on Ting. Like, the, like, uh, and I'm missing people too. There's, I think, uh, I think a couple of our other producers are on Ting. Like, the whole crew is on Ting, and uh, a few of those are all under one account, and that's really nice because it's only six dollars a month for the line, and then just the usage on top of that. Well, everybody I just named is pretty savvy, and they're all Really comfortable with like Wi Fi calling, hangouts, telegram, and stuff like that. So we just get an outrageous savings on our bill. Like it's like it's usually no more than like 40 bucks, 50 bucks a month at max. And that's like when it's 50 bucks a month, it's like when we're all traveling and going to an event. Yeah.
1: Uh, with,
0: with every cell phone provider available in Canada, the $50 is the minimum to have an account. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, techsnap.ting.com. Go there because not only does that support this show and it keeps us going, but it gets you a $25 discount off your first device. If you have a Ting compatible device, and I got like a whole bunch because I got GSM and CDMA networks, well, then they'll give you a $25 discount off of your service for a month and you're just your credit towards the credit and that for me that paid for more than my first month they also have an early termination relief program which is pretty sweet if you're in one of those duopoly contracts and like one of the nice things about ting besides the fact there's no contract it's only paid for what you use it's six dollars a month for the line the phones are unlocked no hold customer service isn't that nice no hold customer service yeah you call them between 8 a.m and 8 p.m east coast time and uh, they also have a great dashboard. And one of the other things I think that's out- uh, outrageously great about Ting is there's so many great ways to stay connected with Ting. They have Twitter. They have an active YouTube profile. They also have a really great blog. In fact, this week, if you've been a Ting customer, I encourage you to go to Ting.com slash blog. Go to techsnap.ting.com, then click on the blog link. They have a security update. Uh, there was a, uh, as a precautionary message, they say, in a process of, they're in the process of resetting everyone's Ting account password, which, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a this was on.
1: a a. Bigger thing that actually happened at Two Cows, the parent company, and in fact, uh, Hover and Open SRS
0: and yeah. everything. Yeah, we're well. going to talk more about it in the roundup, yeah. uh, and we'll give you more information there. But this is just something we want to get the word out. Uh, you know, really, yeah. get your password reset. Yeah, a TING says here, uh, some uh, hoodwinks uh, tried to get into our, in, try to get into TING. We have no evidence that any accounts were accessed or any sensitive details were lifted, uh, but uh, they want you to go out there and uh, try to cha- reset uh, and change your password, because just to be safe, they say they've been looking and they're continuing to look. Uh, they have no cause for worry at the moment, but they're resetting every Tink's customer password. It's just an exercising you know, overabundance of caution, which we here on the TechSnap program absolutely,
1: absolutely exactly. appreciate they're, They didn't say, well, we saw something suspicious, but we didn't see any evidence of any files being taken, so we're not going to make you do anything. It's like, no, we're going to reset because... It's better
0: Yeah, to Might as well do it anyways. It's good hygiene. Also, I encourage you to think of Ting outside the box. Remember, because you only pay for what you use. You can go get that Ting SIM card for $9. No contract. Yep, stick that in any phone you already have. Yeah, stick in a phone you've got or a device. Like if you've got a Raspberry Pi that has the connector for the GSM si- chip, that's pretty cool. The Kyocera Dura-X2 is back $47. This thing is a rugged SOB feature phone. And then, of course, they've got the Nexus 6, the Moto G, the Moto E. Of course, they've also got the Samsung line of devices. they got the iPhone 4, 5, and 6. they got the OnePlus. So many awesome devices. Moto X2 is a mm-hmm. great device. And then they got the Cadillac. The... The real, the real nice device, the, the luxury boat, the showboat of Android devices, the Samsung Galaxy Edge. What a crazy phone. They've also got the S6 regular, and, of course, they've got the Tab. And, of course, the Nexus 6 as well, and the HTC One yes. M8. Lots of really nice. You have the Nexus 6, Alan. How are you liking yes. that? I am loving it. Wow, that's a monster. <laughs> that is a monster. It that works is, great, though. Yeah. Uh great.
1: And it's snappy, and it gets updates and a yeah. good schedule. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. that is very true. In fact, we're going to talk more about that in the roundup, as a matter of fact. You are in a good yes. spot. And you know what? When you combine that with the Ting service with no contract, pay for what you use, $6 for the line, techsnap.ting.com. Man, that's a cool combo. techsnap.ting.com. And a big thanks to Ting. I mean, seriously, go over there and just try out like the savings calculator for a bit and just see how much you would save. It might be like me. It might be like $2,000. And I look at that and I go, geez, I can buy a laptop every couple of years with that. That's that's super nice. TechSnap.ting.com. Big thanks to Tink for sponsoring the TechSnap program. All right, so uh, Brian Krebs takes us on our next into our next mm-hmm. story. He goes into a deep dive, and I feel like it's a mystery story inside the $100 billion business club, Crime Gang. Tell me all about
1: this one. Yes, uh, so Krebs is doing a profile on this uh, group that dubbed themselves Business Club. <laughs> Uh, and who apparently has managed to steal more than $100 million from various European banks and businesses. Mm, the business club, I love it. <laughs> yeah, uh, so the story centers around the uh, game over Zeus Trojan and Botnet. Mm. So we talked about Zeus before. It's this uh, banking malware that can like intercept the multi-factor authentication stuff. For... So basically, uh, when you log into your bank, it's modifying the page to make it uh, look like your bank is asking you for... Like your secret questions and stuff, even when they they're not. Uh-huh. So that when the bad guys are using your account and they get asked a secret question, they already know the answer. Very clever, uh, and stuff like that, or even you know uh, doing it with multi-factor authentication stuff. So like as soon as you log in, they're like, oh, we're ready, and they're sitting there. And then you know when you try to do something normal, maybe they pop up, hey, we just uh, we need you to enter the code, and then you, you get a code comes up on your phone, and you're like, oh, okay you type it in but really it was the code was being sent by their request to transfer all your money to Russia or whatever uh, so this is this uh, so there is a commercial version that's been available and you know any cyber criminal hmm. could buy it for a couple hundred bucks Lovely. on one of these underground forums Lovely. but this is the special version that the author kept for himself uh, and he used it as part of this business club game
0: part of his private collection Alan
1: yeah. So he had a, a even better version of Zeus that he only used himself uh, as part of this group. Okay. Uh, so last year there was a takedown of the Game Over Zeus botnet, uh, and you know, at one point the FBI had a bounty of three million dollars in order to catch the author, Evgeny, uh, uh, some Russian name I can't possibly pronounce, uh, who <laughs> went by the hacker nickname Slavic. Uh, is uh, But most of the details behind this were kind of unknown. Nobody really knew. But that changed today with the release of a detailed report from Foxit, uh, which is a security firm based in the Netherlands that mm. does research on this kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, amer- apparently they managed to secretly gain access to a server that was used by the group's members. Uh, that server, which they rented from a place, uh, was used to launch cyber attacks and also had chat logs between the, gr- uh, the crime group's uh, leaders. And it kind of give them some uh, background of what was actually happening inside the group. So the chat logs show that the crime group uh, referred to itself as Business Club and counted among its members a core group of about half a dozen people uh, that then were supported by a network of more than 50 different people. Uh, They say, in true Ocean's Eleven fashion, each Business Club member brought some kind of cybercrime specialty with them to the group. Nice. Nice. So you know they had one guy that was an expert at this and one guy that was an expert at that, kind of like in Ocean 11, including uh, 24/7 tech support technicians, um, third-party suppliers of ancillary miscellaneous software and stuff like that, or so, uh, you know a guy that was an expert at getting money mules or tricking people into doing stuff like that, or you know people like we trained to to launder stolen funds and all that kind of stuff. So the business club members uh, who had access to the Game Over Zeus botnet panel for hijacking online banking transactions could use the panel to intercept secret uh, security challenges thrown up by the victim's bank, including one time tokens and secret questions and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then be able to get the victim to actually respond to the challenge to let them to go through. Apparently the gang dubbed this botnet interface, the world bank center with the tagline beneath it that read, <laughs> we are playing with your banks.
0: How cute. How cute. Yeah.
1: Uh, the business club regularly divvied up its profits uh, from its cyber heist, although uh, Foxit he said it lamentably doesn't have the details on how that actually worked. However, Slavic, the architect of the Zeus and game over Zeus botnets, uh, didn't share his entire cybercrime machine with the club members. According to Foxit, the malware author converted part of the botnet uh, that was previously being used for cyber heists to steal money. Uh, into a distributed espionage system that targeted specific information from computers in neighboring countries, including Georgia, uh, Turkey, and the Ukraine.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, so beginning in late 2013, about the time that the conflict between Ukraine and Russia was starting to heat up, yeah. Slavic retooled most of the CyberHeist botnet to serve in a purely spying uh, role and began scouring infected systems in the Ukraine for specific keywords and emails and documents that it found... Uh, looking for classified documents and certain keywords having to do with uh, the Ukrainian intelligence agency and things like that. What do you suppose that implies? I think at some point, especially when the heat got turned on and they had this $3 million bounty, uh, that he got an offer from a government and a country that he's in (laughs) um, to protect him in exchange for his services.
0: So he starts spying on the new Ukrainian government.
1: Yeah, so use your botnet to spy on the Ukrainian government for us, and we won't let the Americans come arrest you for stealing the money that you had stole or whatever, right?
0: Hmm. Boy, that, there is some history. Hopefully, will connect the dots on that story. That's interesting.
1: Yeah. Uh, they, apparently, the botnet was also then later used against Turkey. Uh, it says the keywords uh, are around arms shipments and uh, Russian mercenaries in Syria. Uh, obviously, this is something that Turkey would be interested in. And in this case, it was obvious that the Russians wanted to know how much the Turkish already knew.
0: Hmm.
1: So it's like uh, Russia sends mercenaries into Syria and then is watching the computers of neighboring countries to see if they know that it's Russia that's doing it yet.
0: Well, and it's interesting because uh, the, uh, the, the current kind of line of thinking is that uh, not to bring politics into TechSnap. But the situation in Benghazi was actually about – there was a CIA annex station next to Benghazi that was coordinating transfers of weapons from Turkey to Libyan rebels and Syrian rebels. And Turkey was coordinating the transfer of those weapons from the U.S. as sort of a third-party intermediary to sort of absolve the U.S. of the connection to the weapons. And so it's fascinating to see that this would be – communications from the Turkish government that are classified because... That are being surveilled by this Zeus banking Trojan. Right. And if there is connections to the Russian government, because they would likely be the ones interested in monitoring the new Ukrainian government, they'd also be interested in the U.S. supplying arms to Syrian rebels.
1: Exactly. They were backing the Syrian government and so on.
0: Yeah. He's backing Assad. So specifically
1: it says, uh, the espionage side of things was purely managed by Slavic himself. Uh, The rest of his uh, business club co-workers... Uh, might not have been happy about that because all of a sudden the botnets not being used to make money but to help the Russian government and I'm guessing most of them cared less <laughs> about the Russian <laughs> government than the money. Right. Uh, they would probably have been happy to work together on fraud but if uh, they would see that the system they were working on was also being used for espionage against their own country, they might feel compelled to use that against him. Uh, and you know, at one point there was a suggestion is like, is the business with the business club guys turn Slavic in just to get the three million dollar reward? Right, yeah, maybe, huh? But if you're interested in more of this, uh, check out the full white paper from uh, Foxit.
0: There you go. We, uh, we've we been showing a little bit of it in the video version. And the version.
1: Krebs article has uh, quite a good bit of information in it as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. And if you just like these kind of profiles, you should also check out uh, Krebs' book where he does the same thing for a spamming group.
0: Yeah, Spam Nation. Yeah, because yeah.
1: uh, he's, he's, that's what he was focused on before he got as much into the security aspect.
0: Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. Uh, interesting, isn't it, to see how as things <laughs> that involve, like, uh, the cyber the cybersecurity world are perhaps connected to very wor- real-world politics. Um, and, and wouldn't it make sense that an extremely high-profile, well-known botnet author would be contacted by a government agency and be like, Hey, we want to use you, and we're willing to give you something in exchange. Um, it's the stuff that sounds like movies are made of, actually like Mission Impossible movies and things like that. Well,
1: it's like this one is like they compared it to Ocean's Eleven because, you know, they had yeah, a different yeah. expert for each cyber yeah. specialty. and
0: Yeah, yeah, wow. And it's actually happening in the real world, which blows I, my mind. And we're talking about it in text now. I, I
1: <laughs> just about threw up in my mouth, but there's going to be a Cyber Eleven, isn't there?
0: <laughs> oh, a Cyber Eleven. <laughs> somebody's going to do it. They're going to call it Cyber Eleven. Yep. you just coined it right yeah, here, episode two hundred twenty-six. And I threw in my mouth when I did it. Too. <laughs> oh man, wow! It's gonna be called Cyber Eleven too. Okay, or well, would it to be fourteen because they've already done the Oceans 11, 12, and Thirteen. Maybe, so maybe. Either way, they, you should get a little check. I think. I think you should get. Yep. Ch- 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 you should get a little money for that because we can point to this. We can time in, we can time embed in the YouTube link and be like, "No, Alan Jude has a trademark on that. Trademark by Alan Jude. Boom, yeah. problem solved." All right, Al, let me tell you about something else that's going to solve your problems. That's DigitalOcean, simple cloud hosting, dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up a cloud server. I love DigitalOcean. It's my Linux infrastructure on demand, buddy. And here's why I say that. You can get started in less than 55 seconds. Some people get started even like, I got like a tweet. It was like 32 seconds. I'm like that blows my freaking brain apart. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That'll get you 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD. Yeah, buddy, I said a 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. And DigitalOcean, they have data centers in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, and in Germany. That went in Germany is sweet. 40 gigabyte e connections to each hypervisor. What I really like about DigitalOcean, though, is the interface. I feel like the rest of the industry can just like set up and take notice. They really have something great here. You can get your system set up. It's clear which system you're going to use and how much it's going to cost you, what region's going to be deployed, and what operating system. they got Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, CoreOS. Of course, they've even got free BSD now. Fedora 22 is available, and they got the Ubuntu LTSs. They also have one-click deployments of applications like Ruby on Rails and Docker, and all that good stuff they use, Doku, on the back-end. and have Some of the work they've done there is open-sourced up on GitHub as well. And if you use our promo code, and we got a great one, SnapOcean, well, then you get a $10 credit. SnapOcean gives you a $10 credit. Now, think about that. $5 rig, you can get going for two months. Two months, you can try out OwnLab, OwnCloud, GitLab, uh, WordPress, Ghost, which is is really great. Uh, I also would recommend SyncThing. It's had a ton of changes and a ton of improvements, and I've just started looking at it again. And I'm, I'm, I'm Dropbox is is dead. Sync thing is looking really good. As long as you, you know, if you control all the machines you want to sync to, it's a no-brainer. And you can use DigitalOcean to recreate that offsite cloud-like experience, which is so slick if you're moving between your home and a workspace or something like that to have that intermediary. And because they have super-fast connections on the DigitalOcean droplets, it pulls down not so fast. It's basically as fast as you can take it, and so the thing syncs so dang fast. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you know what, you can try it out. See, just try it out, two months for free, when you use the promo code SNAPOcean. That gives you a $10 credit. Try that $5 rig and just play with stuff and see what I'm talking about. Experience their interface, experience deploying applications, all of that. Spin up a droplet. And not only that, in that time you could try out some of their great tutorials. Like they have one up there on their website right now. How to install Linux, Nginx, MySQL, PHP on Debian 7. The limp stack. You know, because Nginx is really, you know, it's a lot of people are looking at this over at Apache these days for tons of good reasons. And oh, yeah. so some good documentation on how to actually do it is, is invaluable.
1: If you're only running like one application or something, you're definitely better. Uh, basically, if you can get away without having to have .htaccess files because you can put it in the config file,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I, there's no reason to use Apache anymore except for the case where you're hosting websites for a whole bunch of people and they need to be able to yeah. adjust the chunks of the config. And there's even ways to do it with Nginx. They're not as nice. Yeah, but.
0: yeah, yeah. But, I mean, this is what I love about it is, like, DigitalOcean, like, it's so... I mean, $5 a month is nuts, but then they have these tutorials. They're edited by professionals. They pay people for their contributions, so they're really good. And you can try all of it out for two months for free when you use our Mm -hmm. promo code SNAPOcean. Just go over to DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a huge thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Hey, Mr. Jude. Before we move on, do you want to give a plugsy plugs for this week's episode of the old BSD Now program? Yes, you should check it out. And actually, what we were just talking about made me think of uh, one of the things news items
1: we covered was somebody on GitHub has done up a huge write up on how to do a ZFS remote backup. Oh, nice. Uh, now, their setup is to, like, a Raspberry Pi at their parents' house. Oh, cool. Uh, but you could also do it to a DigitalOcean droplet because they run FreeBSD. Or yeah. you can even do it with ZFS on Linux on yeah. our DigitalOcean yep. droplet. Yep, yep, yep. Episode 101. And, uh, yeah, so that's in there. And because it's on GitHub, it's easy for people to submit change pull requests on it and stuff to, like, improve it or add extra examples or whatever. So you should definitely check out that article if you're interested in remotely backing Gosh, up.
0: that's really cool.
1: Alan. And basically, it has a bunch of, uh, it goes through the pros and cons of doing it that way versus you know doing sync thing or rsync or Dropbox or whatever.
0: Mm. You guys also had the interview with Adrian in uh, this interview. Yes, with BSD, huh? interview
1: with Adrian Chad. That was a forty-five minute interview. It was amazing. He's a great guy. Ways to uh, improve had, FreeBSD? Huh? Uh, yeah. So there was a Reddit thread he started about that asking, and it got hundreds and hundreds of responses. And uh, we talked to him about a bunch of those and walked into some of the stuff. That's a great uh, idea. All kinds of great stuff.
0: Cool. Episode 101 of the BSD Now program. This is the midway point in the TechSnap program. So if you want more Jude in your face when we wrap up, you go get the HD version right now. And then it should be done about the time we're finished up. And then you just start it up full screen. Alan's all up in your grill. And you're good to go. Episode 101 of the BSD Now program. And stay tuned. There could be some interesting surprises very soon. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupyterbroadcasting.com or pop in that contact link at the top of the Jupiter broadcasting website or even better like a ninja creating a thread over on our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com our first email this week comes from tim and tim writes in about a freeness question and quad gigabit ethernet Damn, son. He says, hey, Alan and Chris. Thanks again for always putting together a great show. It's always well worth the listen. Uh, I'm in the midst of building a new home Naz." I love, I love the stage he's in right now. He says, I'm planning to use FreeNAS. He's in the planning, which is so much fun. And I'm tossing around a few networking ideas to, with connections with the project. The motherboard I've purchased has an Intel C2000 system on a chip i354 NIG with 4 gigabit Ethernet ports. My LAN has been cruising with only 100 megabit connections, even though one or two of my other devices has a gigabit interface. I'm writing to ask what sort of options I might have to put these 4 gigabit E ports to use in my home network i'm obviously not at the point where i would benefit from setting up a leg uh, interface which would gain me any performance but i'd like to start with taking advantage of gigabit speeds as much as i can especially for daily backups Mm -hmm. it is possible and wise to bridge the ports and a subset of ports together in a switch like fashion so that traffic could pass across them like a switch He's asking you that question. Mm-hmm. What considerations and concerns would this raise for reliability and security? Would I just be better off buying a gigabit switch and only using one of my free NAS Ethernet ports for now? Thanks, as always, so, for the great show. Tim.
1: Yeah, uh, so there's a couple options there. So if you don't have the gigabit switch, then if you were to connect each computer individually to one of those gigabit ports and bridge them, it would kind of act like a switch. Yeah. It wouldn't be as fast as a switch because the network cards actually have to do a lot more work than a switch does. Um, because the switching would actually happen in the operating system, so it's not as fast as when it's happening in hardware. Um, but in general, that'll work, and that'll let you have gigabit speeds on a couple more computers without buying a gigabit switch. At the same time, a little like five-port gigabit switch is like forty dollars. Nothing, or
0: something. right? And it's you totally can, uh, worth even it. less, yeah. And it's uh, just or, so
1: nice. You know, I just bought yet another of the Netgear. Um, GS724T. Yeah, yeah. 24-port yep. Um, yep. gigabit switch for $199. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, and that one has support for lags and VLANs and all the stuff you might need. Uh, other options you have are, for example, the file server here at my house has four gigabit ports. I have two of them each on uh, lags, which are link aggregation groups. You make uh, two network cards work together, bond together as if they were one. Um, two of the ports go to my home network, and two of the ports go to my office network. Uh, and that's two completely different subnets, and computers upstairs in my house can't talk to the computers in my office. But we both share the file server. Uh, and stuff like that. Um, and then the chat room was asking about a lag. There's So when you bond two network cards together, uh, the way it works is the driver will do a hash of the from and to addresses on the packets. Okay. And... Um, Decide and basically, depending on you know if the hash is even or odd, it will send the packet out port one or port two. Uh, and so that means that you can now send two gigabits of traffic out to the network. But if you're sending just from your file server to one machine, uh-huh. it's always going to hash to one of the ports or the other, and so you're actually not going to gain any speed. Okay, so it doesn't make one connection faster, okay. but if you have multiple connections. Uh, it can make it faster. Okay. Although there is a 50% chance that both will get hashed to the same nick and screw you up. Um, <laughs> it depends on some settings whether the hash includes more than just the MAC address. Uh, usually, or sorry, I think usually it's the MAC address and the IP address, um, but... Optionally, some uh, like FreeBSD's driver supports also doing layer four, which will be the TCP/IP port number, Ooh. which would allow you, if you were making two connections between the file yeah. server and your computer, to actually use both gigabits. Right. The problem is the switch, if it only does layer two and three, right, the MAC address and the IP address, it's going to receive the data from both NICs at two gigabits and then try to send it all down one port to the other computer, and mm. it's not going to work. Mm. So I've had, I did some ingenious things with VLANs to get around that. <laughs> so uh, the FreeBSD lag driver actually has an option called round robin, where it just fires every other packet out of the two ports. So it's usually all the NICs all the time. When those arrive at the switch, the second port is in a different VLAN than the first port. Okay. So the packets don't get recombined. They stay separate. And then when they get over to the destination ports, eventually they get untagged as they leave the switch and so when they re- arrive at the destination system it just comes in as both streams at the same time mm, okay. although technically this violates the Ethernet standard because the frames aren't necessarily in order because you're just round robining them as fast as you can
0: <laughs> you're making but, a mess yeah it's a mess
1: <laughs> Yeah, but the FreeBSD driver will handle it and, oh. and it'll work okay Your other (laughs) option is uh, obviously if you do the proper protocol, LACP or Link Aggregation Control Protocol. Mm -hmm. uh, It means the switches will negotiate uh, the setup and will be able to deal with if one of the NICs goes down or if you add a third NIC at any time and all this kind of craziness.
0: Sure. All right, Mister Jude, are you ready for the next question?
1: Uh, So I guess his last uh, he asked about security. Uh, Basically, depending how you set it up, you can actually make it so that if you don't bridge them, you could make it so that. you know, computers over here can access this share, but not, and only computers over here, this one, but they can't talk to each other. Whereas if you bridge them, the traffic, basically your compu- your file server turns into a switch and it's not as good. Uh, in general, I'd say you could buy the gigabit switch, but if you don't want to, you can play with that and bridge it and have it. Uh, the problem with that is if you reboot your free NAS, you're going to temporarily <laughs> disable the yeah. internet, the, the network connection between your machines that used to use a switch instead.
0: Hmm. All right, Mr. Jude. Okay, moving okay. on. Moving Mm -hmm. on. Next question comes in from Hacker Shack. How about that one? Hacker Shack. (laughs) No? You don't think that? I think that's a good one. I like that. Anyways, he says, Can anyone recommend a good eSATA enclosure for a 3.5-inch SATA drive? I have an old Altima aluminum case that is perfect, but it isn't sold anywhere. I'd like to buy one and like to place a 4 terabyte drive in the enclosure. Now, Alan, I wanted to kind of actually maybe even talk a little more about eSATA enclosures, hooking them up to a storage array and using them with ZFS and your thoughts on that in general. Because... You know, I have to be honest with you, as somebody who has a, a, a FreeNAS Mini with a set a set amount of disks, it's extremely, extremely, extremely tempting to use that eSATA port to hook up a big old more, you know, maybe yep. something multiplexed uh, with a whole bunch of more disks or something, because I need more storage.
1: Yeah, so eSATA is definitely better than USB, because, uh, right. you know, in the end, it's just SATA. Um, the problem is, once you start using something that's multiplexing or something like that, then that's a translation step, and... The big thing there is, it can mean that if that gets stuck on an error or something, it means all those drives disappear at once. Okay, which can be
0: un- you know what? Yes, in Although my experience, usually
1: is- you know, it turn- power cycle it and it all comes back, and ZFS will recover. It's not so bad, but um, you know,
0: not my preference, but definitely doable. Okay, so when I because when I asked you about USB, you were kind of like yeah, USB is down. No. Okay, all right. So ESAT a, a little more comfortable. All right, very good. All right, next email. Um. But, you know,
1: uh, for my setup, slightly different, I suppose, uh, but I got an LSI controller card that has uh, external SAS connector and then connected to an external chassis that just had the more disks in it. That's probably a lot more expensive than an ESAT enclosure off your Newegg or NCIX or whatever, but, you know, it depends what you're doing. In my case, I wanted the second shelf of disks to be rack-mountable.
0: <laughs> all right. Obviously Alan,
1: not what most people are doing
0: Next email comes in from Paul And Paul writes, uh, he says Hi Chris and Ellen, first of all, thanks for the great show I've been listening to Last and TechSnap regularly For a couple of years now He says you regularly rec- recommend the use of PFSense I installed it on suitable hardware It makes for a very capable router You know, compared with consumer routers It's highly configurable and it's at least updated. Security risks due to consumer routers are not getting updated, and firmware appears to be worsening. It ke- appears to be a problem that keeps getting worse. I was in need of a new router due to upgrade of my internet services. I'm in the UK, and my ISP is Virgin Media. The service uses DOCSIS 3.0 technology, via which I get 152 megabits. Hmm, not bad. And he says when he runs it on the test, he has around 158, uh, 159 down, and 12 megabits up. Hmm. and That's about a ten a nice internet. <laughs> yeah with a 10 mega se- megasecond uh, meg- megasecond <laughs> 10 mega That's millisecond so cool. pinged as well he says i was intending to continue the use of supplied virgin media hub in my uh, modem only mode and run a separate router the service upgrade would have a, would give me a problem as the netgear router i was using was uh, only fast ethernet and such would limit my service. I said to try right. a so it. So we only sense. Had 100
1: megabits ports. So yeah. having a
0: 160 megabit internet connection and then
1: a 100 megabit router wasn't going to work so well.
0: So he got a PC for 100 pounds. It has a 2.5 inch hard drive, 160 gigabytes in storage, 4 gigabytes of RAM. All in, total cost was 160 pounds. Not bad. Total power consumption is 16 watts. After some trial and error and getting all the settings across from his existing Netgear, the router's been in operation for about a year now. With dual core Atom CPUs at 1.8 gigahertz, the router has plenty of performance to act as a router. It can be used to run a DNS server. He has snort turned on, a proxy server, full, PN, full uh, VPN, and all of these functions can be set up via the PFSense web interface. He says, uh, it was really cl- he says it's really critical that I mention the dual NICs are Broadcom and not Intel. Also, the Atom processor does not support AES and I to accelerate the VPN encryption. Now, why, right. Alan, why do you suppose he figures it's important to mention the Broadcom and not Intel? Is that something unique to PFSense? The Intels
1: Sense? are definitely better, mm. but, you know, the Broadcoms do work uh, yeah, when they're you know, wired next. But
0: he says overall, he's been very pleased with how PFSense has been mm-hmm. running on his Minix PC, uh, and he says it's been a great experience of BSD. He says I yeah, hope you uh, found it interesting. I we had
1: oh. a similar story. Uh, we hosts uh, the, a video streaming thing for uh, a government agency here that does math tutoring for all students from like grade 7 to 10 in every public school in Ontario. Hmm. Uh, and they had a Cisco ASA firewall thing, had gigabit interfaces, but it couldn't do more than 200 megabits per second of traffic or it just fall over and die. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so man. we took one of their HP servers, <laughs> which has four Broadcom gigabit Ethernet nicks. Uh, we took one of their, their dev server that was spare, reformatted it, threw PFSense on it, and now it can route two gigabits per second of traffic and doesn't even break a sweat. Funny, funny. It's like we replaced this like $10,000 Cisco thing with the leftover server Mm -hmm. and it works better.
0: That's amazing when that happens. I love that. Jason writes in, and this is great. We had a question last week around like a GlusterFS alternative, and we're like, all right, we'll toss this out to the community. Maybe we'll get a good answer. Well, Jason writes in with not just one good answer, but like three, and maybe even four really solid, great answers. He says recently a viewer had a question with essentially sounded like a distributed network file system. Alan mentioned GlusterFS. Well, maybe I misunderstood the user's requirements. But there are a couple of distributed network file systems that are all open source. And basically, the guy's question was: Is I know about GlusterFS. I don't really want to use GlusterFS right now. What are my other options? And so Jason says, check out Moose FS, Lizard F S, and Ceph. C E P H, which was recently purchased uh, by Red Hat. He says also Lizard FS, by the way, is binary compatible code rewrite of Moose FS. Go check these out. You might find some of this information useful. Again, that's Moose FS, Lizard F S, and Ceph, which is C E P H and so of course. of
1: course, if a whole project, LizardFS, was based on the fact of let like, Moose F S is so terrible we need to rewrite all of the code. Uh, that doesn't inspire me to use MooseFS very <laughs> much. Um, now, Ceph, I have heard of a bunch of people. Uh, I might actually try to look into that. Mm-hmm. Um, although that was also where uh, SourceForge ran into all their problems. Although I don't know that that was actually because of Ceph. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mentioned GlusterFS because what he was asking about ZFS and so on, and I think that was the one that, as far as I had heard, was closest to. Uh, working with FreeBSD.
0: Yeah. and There's there's a working part of it. Yeah, which we talked a little bit in last week's episode about. Now, Alan, uh, maybe we should have put this at the top of the news segment because this is kind of a big deal. Uh, The integrity of FreeBSD could be completely compromised because some rogue hacker known as Alan Jude now has enhanced commit privileges. Can you expand upon this story, Mr. Jude?
1: Right. So I... yeah, I'm sure everybody's <laughs> seen the video if they were interested. Uh, last year, in 2014, at uh, BSDcan, they gave me a, a documentation commit bit, which allowed me to commit to the documentation tree at will. Uh, well, I'm under mentorship, so <laughs> everything I do have to be reviewed first, and so on. Anyway, but I could go crazy on docs. Uh, but based on my recent work on the installer and some other bits, uh, they've now. Uh, giving me a commit bit for the source tree so I can actually break the entire operating system.
0: Good job, sir. Uh, I would say that is a level up achievement unlocked, as it were. Yes. Uh,
1: And uh, (laughs) (laughs) you should definitely uh, feel sorry for uh, Baptiste Rosson and uh, Marcel Moulinard, who are my mentors, and have to review everything I propose to commit.
0: I do. I do. I do. But you know know what? what? You know, it's a pretty... It's, it's pretty <laughs> neat, though. It's still at the same time. It's, it's pretty cool. And yep. you know what? Uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure, Alan, I'm sure you'll be judicious and cautious with your commands. Yes. I'm sure. I, I have no doubt. Uh, and, have I haven't
1: broken so far. I broke... Uh, I made Xargs, the uh, utility which basically allows you to take an input thing and break it up into... A, you know, if you have to delete a thousand file names, uh, instead of running rm file, rm file, you can do... Pipe that list into Xargs and it'll break it up into two or three commands, whatever, based on... You know, you can only have so many files listed per command, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and sometimes you're only allowed. You know, for example, if you're doing ZFS, you're only allowed one uh, argument at a time. So, uh, xargs has this option where you can do like capital P five, and it'll do five of them at a time concurrently. Yeah. Uh, well, on Linux, there's minus P zero, which does as many as possible at once, uh, and BSD didn't support that, and uh, so somebody had proposed a patch to add it,
0: and I. I uh, cleaned it up and got it committed. Very nice. Cool. Cool. Well, you know what? If you would like Alan's same attention to detail and judiciousness and cautiousness, you can email the program, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. Go over to com slash contact and send in your questions. We want to get your questions on the show. Give us a whole new batch, please. I really do want them. Your security questions, your networking, your hardware, your infrastructure Questions about purchases Anything like that That we like to just get into Please send them in To the show And that way We can answer them In next week's episode Of the TechSnap program You can also submit them To the subreddit TechSnap.reddit.com And of course We love to get them Every single week So keep sending them in Even if we didn't get To your question this week It might still be In our archive And we'll try to get to it Next week And if you don't hear an answer Try the subreddit Because we have a really Really smart community As well But with the feedback All done That means it's time For the Snap roundup Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, and that's what that crazy music means. Now, the roundup of stories just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to go over them, maybe give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And a lot of these links, came from our incredibly powerful and yet amazingly simple subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story this week is about Kim.com and him saying that your data ain't safe on Mega.com anymore. Now, I don't really give a crap about this story too much, but I find this whole controversy to be fascinating. I never trusted Mega to begin with, but in a QA session with Slashdot users this week, Kim.com, the infamous former millionaire at the center of the U.S. court case against Mega Upload, said that he wasn't so happy with the direction of Mega. He said he doesn't trust it anymore. And he says he's seen some criticism from open source advocates and hackers that Mega can't be trusted because of the source and it's not available. What assurances could you give us at this point? And he hummed and he hawed about it and he said, uh, I'll give you more information later. He followed up with a tweet saying, I will issue a detailed statement about the status of hashtag Mega next week. Then you can make an educated decision if you still want to use it.
1: Do you care, Alan? Mm-hmm. Uh, not especially. I never used the service. No. And, yeah, exactly like you say. I wouldn't use something that uh, wasn't open source because I wouldn't trust it.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it seems like almost a non-story to me. But, uh, but uh, basically,
1: it's interesting to see the story that apparently, uh, you know, he's not involved in Mega anymore, and that the company suffered from a hostile takeover by a Chinese investor. Yeah. Who has since had his shares seized by the New Zealand
0: government. That's the interesting part of the story, in my opinion.
1: I think those sentences might have emerged together. I think. Kim.com had his share seized, wasn't yeah, it? I would imagine. Not, that's not what the meant. Chinese guy, or maybe both? Who knows? Yeah. Because part of it was the lawsuit actually against uh, the website, right? I don't know.
0: You got to love this next one, Alan. It comes from the register. Get root on OS 10.10. All it takes is a tweet. At least the exploit fits in a tweet. That's a yeah. nice one.
1: So it's, it's really simple, basically. If you echo um, a line. Uh, that includes like, the who am I command and then all equals all, no password, all. Basically, the line that you would put in sudoers <laughs> to give yourself a root. Yeah. So you echo that into uh, FD number three, pipe that, and then set an environment variable dynamic loader, print to file, and specify the sudoers file and run the new group command. It's actually, because that command's SUID, it's going to actually um, echo yeah. the line you just printed to that third file descriptor yeah. into that sudoers file. And then you just run sudo minus s in your root. Why an environment variable has the ability to uh, write a random line from a file descriptor into a file, I would never understand.
0: Oh, so but. that way it just works, Alan. Yeah. It just works.
1: Yeah. Uh, so basically, set UID binary, <laughs> uh, like new group, and boom, you have
0: yep. uh, everything you need. Hey, uh, Alan, did you ever read The Martian? Nope. Oh my goodness, son. If you need an audible for a trip or something like that, get The Martian. It's the best book. Oh, you'll is read. that the one? There's the movie coming out. Yes, it's yes with yes, Ben. A- uh, well, not uh, Ben Affleck, but um, what's the uh, other one? Not Ben Affleck. Uh, what's the other guy? Come on, what's the other guy? David. Yeah, Matt Damon. Yeah, the uh, other guy. Yeah, uh,
1: Matt Damon. Heather, Heather was raving about it. Oh,
0: oh, I bet she would because oh, yeah. a lot of the science they talk about, at her company has talked about years ago. She's talked about it yeah. in SciBite a year or two ago, and and that was what was truly fascinating about The Martian for me as the co-host of SciBite was yeah. it was like some it's of all this,
1: based on reality and so on. the movie less so
0: probably. It's but. stuff. It's Alan literally. It's stuff that Heather told me about a year and a half ago, coming to life in a book, and it's. It's incredible, and it is a, you should listen to it, and the, audi, the Audible book is mind-bendingly good. Uh, yeah. If we still have affiliate links at the bottom of our website, go use those first before you <laughs> go get this book. Hook us up because it's super good. And here's kind of the bummer part is the author of The Martian uh, got, got kind of his, uh, his identity compromised because basically the Comcast reps were socially engineered. Uh, so uh, Andy Weir... And uh, Mark, uh, he's the guy that created Mark Watney, the main character in the book. He's the author of The Martian. He ran into a tricky problem back here on Earth this week, as ours puts it, when his Twitter accounts were hacked. Now, he says the culprit was a hacker who actually reset the password for for his his Comcast.net email. email. Right. And then once, like like you say all the time. said, once you get the email address, you have everything. Exactly, which is exactly what happened. Honestly. This is why I recommend against using ISP
1: email addresses. Partly because just someday you're probably going to, you know, most people that have Comcast would rather they didn't. So if an alternative becomes available someday, you're going to switch. And then it's like, oh, but I need my Comcast email address. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because all of my accounts are tagged to it.
0: Yeah, and here's what he posted on Facebook as a follow-up. He said, uh, they also set up an email forward to an account they control. So even after I changed my email password, they were still getting my emails until I found that. Whee!
1: Yeah. This is why uh, maybe your best bet is a Digital Ocean droplet for a mail server. Only costs $5 a month. Mm-hmm. Go buy a domain, you know, whatever yourownname.com and have an email address that you control forever uh, on a mail server that nobody's going <laughs> to mess around with. Yeah. It's a bit more work, but you know, $5 a month is worth it uh, to make sure that nobody can socially engineer and replace your email account.
0: Yeah. You are so su- you are a pro, Alan. At spotting when Netflix makes some really interesting uh, posts about how they manage their infrastructure, and we have another one just like that in the roundup. This one's a video from uh, uh, what is this? scale conference. S- oh, okay, okay. Uh, scaling it's from scale, the Netf- yeah, scaling and the Netflix global CDN. Lessons learned from terabit zero.
1: Yeah, so they actually now sending a terabit per second. God, uh, which is a is thousand gigabits per second. Uh, and they basically that. describe how they built up their network from. Zero capacity to being able to push a terabit
0: per second. Woo-wee, that's got to be a heck of a, of a presentation. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it looks like, wow. Wow, look at that. They're showing yes, all they kinds of goods, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: I've actually got to touch one of those uh, Netflix storage appliances. Oh. Uh, actually, an older one. Uh, but they actually brought it to uh, MeetBSD in 2012. But, uh, yeah, those machines are awesome looking. That's really slick, Alan.
0: So, uh, a yeah, cool they, video. They
1: kind of you know, remind me a bit of it, like at the back blaze where you just like fill <laughs> the chassis with hard drives as tight as you can. Yeah, They just got them like, bolted to every loose
0: surface. Uh, all right. Let's uh, move right along in the roundup here. Right along, Alan. That brings us to Thunderstrike 2. Now, this, you might remember Thunderstrike, the uh, malware that could be spread by Thunderbolt devices that would write to the uh, firmware on the boot ROM on a MacBook because... Thunderbolt is right on the PCI Express bus, and it made it yep, essentially yep, yep. possible to do sneaker net spreading of malware. Well, Thunderbolt, uh, th- I'm sorry, Thunderstrike 2 came along, and this one used a software exploit that could be delivered over the Internet, and that caused quite a bit of ruckus. Well, before we got a chance to tell you about it, Apple did release some bit, somewhat of a patch, at least for 10.10.4. If you're running 10.10.4, it's slightly patched. <laughs> it's slightly patched. Slightly patched. Yeah, thanks to a firmware update, the author says of the original malware that it's no longer trivially Trivially? Trivially available. Yeah. Or, I'm sorry, vulnerable. But it yeah. lists several vulnerabilities that Apple still needs to fix. The company has been informed of the problems. And Hudson and Xenon Kovacs, the other researchers who developed a th- Thunderstrike, issue, will be presenting more details at Black Hat. Yep. Yeah. Which, is, which one's first? I can never remember. It was Black Hat or well, DEF Well, Black Con Hat's going first. on right now. It started yesterday.
1: Right. And then it's DEF CON is the less corporate one that happens over the weekend yeah. after. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, so uh, so here, for those of you who are not uh, fully up-to-date, uh, Thunderstrike 2 is a new proof-of-concept attack that still spreads primarily through infected Thunderbolt accessories. But where the original Thunderstrike required a malicious user to have physical access to a Mac, you know, you have to be able to hook a Thunderbolt peripheral up to it, uh, this new one could be done via a phishing email or a malicious website. Once the download was done and you, if you ran it with administrative privileges, uh, and so on most Macs, by default, they only run signed applications. You have to right-click open to, to bypass that. And in fact, in some corporate Macs, they only run software from the Mac App Store. So those Macs, would, that would be your first level of protection. Say you had a way to bypass that. So if you bypass the default or even the more restricted mode, if you could bypass that, then the user would be prompted to enter their administrative-level privileges. Now, they'd have to have administrative-level rights on the Mac. Uh, and if they entered their own password... And they had administrative level rights. At that point, this program would write itself to the ROM. It would not matter from, then point, from that point forward if you format the hard drive, if you put a new hard drive in, whatever, every time it would reinfect the Macintosh, every Thunderbolt device you would connect would be infected with Thunderbolt Strike 2. So it's kind of a nasty thing. Uh, and that's why it's kind of a big deal that Apple is trying to patch this. And that's the danger of firmware-level malware is that most virus scanners and other mal- anti-malware products... Won't be able to find it because they focus on RAM, they focus on disk, they can't scan these proprietary firmware controllers. So it's interesting, and it's something right now that could theoretically apply to any Thunderbolt-based hardware, but it's been only really tested on the Macs. It's kind of fascinating, Alan. Of course, you're probably patching your Macs right now, right, Alan? You're patching your Macs, Alan? I don't have any Macs. Oh, all right. Well, hey, let's go to our next uh, Netflix story from <laughs> Scale. Yes. Or maybe not from Scale, actually. No, but this is a different conference. Yeah, this, uh, this is, is from the
1: uh, nginx.conf yeah. uh, conference.
0: Using nginx and FreeBSD to build yeah, their own so this is,
1: yeah. uh Yeah, This in this one, they go into a lot more technical detail about specifically why they picked uh, nginx and FreeBSD, oh. uh, why they choose to uh, contribute back to the to the open source projects, why they run like the developmental versions of the programs instead of uh, not
0: oh, fascinating. Like we
1: could we could have picked you know a stable version of FreeBSD 8 or something and built on that, and then um, on the first of August uh, when FreeBSD 8.4 went end of life, we would have been kind of screwed and we'd have to try to like forklift all the way up to 10, and there'd be a bunch of big so changes all at once. they call it. Whereas them, if we they, run they head, it- we can.
0: They call it the myths of stable versions and I, I just wanna yeah. tell people about this because this is particularly fascinating. It it comes in at uh, at nineteen minutes in the video. If you wanna hear what Alan's talking about, nineteen minutes in the video where they talk about the myths of the stable version. And this is I'm checking this out after the show. All right, sorry to interrupt
1: Alan, but I just want to give
0: the folks well, the specific yeah. moment.
1: Uh, but yeah, there's a bunch of there where he talks about the, the myths and the pros and cons of, of doing it the way they do it and why they chose to do it that way. Uh, you know, was this was a was myth- common course, theme at uh, uh, BSDcan this year with the companies that were there, because uh, a bunch of them are um, in the middle of or just finishing giant projects where they're like moving from FreeBSD six to ten or or you know something like that, and they're like, yeah, we promise we'll never get this far behind again because that was really dumb. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: you know, yeah. if you're building a new product, don't start with what's stable right now because if it takes you two years to build your product then that's not gonna, you're going to be past the end of life by the time you're done. Whereas if you start developing on your current one and can keep subsuming those updates as they're coming, then when you release your product, you're already on the latest version and it's much easier to stay there. There's not every change that's happened since you started working. Right? It's easier to spread that cost out week over week or month over month instead of you know, having to do these uh, giant forklift projects all at once.
0: I agree. I'm just going to leave it at that. That's been. I, I completely agree. All right, Alan. This next one's kind of speaking of keeping up on top of things. Yes. I I don't know. I am. I am. I I am. Uh, I'm so skeptical, but I just want to believe. I believe this can happen, Alan. And, and Google's going to make it. They're going to make it happen. Uh, this is just this announced today. Uh, from this week on, Nexus devices will receive regular over-the-air updates each month focused on security. In addition to the usual platform. Updates. The first security updates of this kind were rolled out today, August 5th that's uh, yesterday to the Nexus 4, 5, 6 7, 9, and 10 and of course even the Nexus player. The security update contains fixes for issue bulletins provided to partners through July 2015 including fixes for uh, for the lib stage fright issue At the same time, the fixes will be released to the public via the open source project. Nexus devices will continue to receive major updates for at least two years and security patches for longer of three years from initial availability or 18 months from the last sale of the device via the Google store.
1: So which is ever longer? So you get at least three years or uh, 18 months after they stop selling it, whichever is longer. So if they keep selling it for five years, you get five years plus 18 months. Uh, So this is what we asked for like two years ago, Uh, Google guaranteeing that we're going to push a security, you know, we're going to have a patch Tuesday every month and we're actually going to fix the problems. And, you know, all it's going to take for this to happen everywhere is once, you know, once Google makes this policy and... If the phone companies get used to doing it and it's going to have one every month, then they're just going to set up the infrastructure to just handle it. Well, the OEMs Instead also, of,
0: Samsung, HTC, LG, Motorola, yep. they all have to get on board, too. Like, that's just scratching Well, Samsung has already said they're on board. Yes. Yep. 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 Well, so, uh, they've said uh, things like this before. That's why I'm twice, a little so I'm skeptical. Happy, I hope it works. I really do. All right, on this yeah. next one's a tweet. I call... Just It's really needed to happen. It really needs to happen, yeah. All right, next one in the roundup. A call to PHP's MT underscore ran generates only odd numbers, and they have a link here. This is a tweet in the roundup.
1: it shows the output. What's more interesting, if you look a little bit further down, uh, somebody else has a second tweet where they talk about it looks even more interesting in hex. And if you look at that one, you see the random numbers printed out in hex instead of uh, as random numbers. They actually look quite a bit different, and you get... uh, Mm. If you look at the hex, you see it's a bunch of random digits and then zero 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 zero, zero one. one. Yeah. And it's like, uh-oh, it's like all the low bits are not being set or something. Looks like it could be a fairly serious bug. And yes, your random numbers are a lot less random if there's a whole string of zeros
0: in them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. thanks, Alan. Oh, great. More retailers hit by a third-party breach, including the online services like uh, uh, some of the online Walmart and submissions, CVS Pharmacy, Rite Aid, Sam's Club, Walmart Canada.
1: Yeah. So basically all of these companies, what they have in common is they outsource... Uh, to another company for video processing. And photo so processing if you've too, been to no any way. of these, uh, yeah, photo processing. Uh, if you've been to any of these stores, you know there's a kiosk you walk up to and you can plug a USB stick or stick an SD card in and process your, get your photos done. Oh yeah, sure. Uh, well, the company that makes that kiosk or software for it anyway got breached. And so it has all the payment data and uh, or the, uh, some of the stores say they're not sure that the credit cards were stolen, but there was a breach and it affected all of these companies because they all, it turns out oh. every one of these photos kiosks is from the same company.
0: Oh, boy. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. You get, you get the one guy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and like the way it's set up, uh, instead of Walmart integrating in their website, there was like you know, walmartphotos.com or whatever that was basically just pointing to this other company, and all of those sites are currently offline while they uh, try to solve some of the problems they had.
0: Okay, Alan, our next roundup comes from openwall.com. What's this one about? The, this is
1: uh, from the open
0: source uh, operating system
1: security list. Yeah. So this is where they talk about uh, security vulnerabilities and, and, you know, where you get CVE numbers assigned and how uh, there's a, a separate private list where the Linux distros and uh, FreeBSD and so on get told about vulnerabilities ahead of time to coordinate, all right, everybody, you know, on, at noon on Friday, we're going to all release our patches for this vulnerability, right, to give everybody time to get all their patches ready. So um, uh, Quals, which is the company that does like SSLab.com and a bunch of other stuff, they found uh, two exploits for WordPress. And so they got their CVE numbers assigned and they set up a coordinated release date for the patch uh, for July 23rd okay. at 5 p.m. East or, uh, uh, Not Eastern or Pacific, UTC. Uh, so then they posted on the list here. It's like, uh, hello, it's July 23rd at 5 p.m. UTC, the coordinated release date for CVE... Uh, 3245 and 3246 please find our advisory below and our exploits attached and then um, somebody replied in, with, in, with uh, emphasis why are you <laughs> releasing a full exploit just minutes after the patch is released Right. disclosure I am an employee of Red Hat but this is purely a personal question right like why the hell are you doing this and then obviously the response is uh, because that's how coordinated release dates work <laughs> Instead of trying to shame calls for not following your arbitrary views on what is or isn't responsible disclosure, uh, you should make sure Red Hat uh, releases patches hours before the CRD just like Ubuntu does. (laughs) Right? So everybody was given the patch ahead of time and was like, make sure you're ready because we're releasing the details at this time. And then they're like, why did you release the the exploit along with the details? It's like, because that's what you do. (laughs) Mm. It's like,
0: Maybe we need to visit that.
1: Uh, you know, that's that's what this is basically the hybrid of full disclosure, which is you announce the vulnerability and give out the exploit code immediately, right? And then there's responsible disclosures. You tell people ahead of time, everybody gets all patched up, and you say I'm releasing at this yeah. time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess this guy was expecting them to release the details of the ex- of the problem, mm-hmm. but not the exploit code. And it's like, well, at that point, you're really not helping anything uh, because. Anybody can read the details and write their own exploit code. But at least now that you've attached some exploit code, after I've patched, I can use that exploit code to make sure that my patches were successful. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So actually mm-hmm. having the reproducer or the proof of concept with the security node is quite helpful because it lets you make sure that you, their patches have actually been effective.
0: Well, that is something to think about, Alan. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for this next story? Mm hmm. Okay, so um, I do we got to ruin all the things? HP has a new study that reveals that smartwatches are vulnerable to attack. Smartwatches have only just started to become part of our lives, they say, but they deliver a new level of functionality that could potentially be open. That could potentially be opening the door to new threats and sense information and activities. The general manager of HP security said, "Dun dun dun." I don't know, Alan. I mean, I guess anything that has a network operating system that has con- an active, persistent connection to the internet, or at least a network, has potentials to be exploited. But isn't this? The, yeah, this is the, if you have a laptop, a Chromebook, a cell phone, a tablet. That's all the same, right? Don't you think?
1: Well, so why do we have to make the new mistakes every time we add a new class of device? <laughs> yeah, I don't have an answer for you there. Right? It's like why can't we? By the not the phone learned from all the mistakes we've made on cell phones instead of doing the same thing all over again. well, I
0: would argue like, we, we some should, operating we should systems just have. learn
1: right, but we should definitely learn from what Google just did when they what they finally just did for phones. every device should have a monthly update cycle
0: right well i I would argue uh, that we have learned that the Google model doesn't work, and the Apple model does work eighty five percent of iPhones run the latest version of ios eighty five percent. You know how many Android devices run lollipop? Two percent. So mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's pretty clear one model yep. works, and one model doesn't when it comes to updates and security patches. And but at the same time, uh, Apple doesn't guarantee
1: a lifetime like uh, Android did. And basically, if you have an older iOS device, you're expected to throw it away, not keep using well, it. Well
0: yeah, it's technically, except for you can have a 4 and an iPhone 4 or 4S, four which at this point is let's see they've so you have four, 4S, four 5. 5s and 6 that's 5 years old that's more than any android device on the marketplace that gets updates today so in practicality you know the, in, in 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 how it well, actually it, works for consumers an like iphone yeah. 4 gets the latest ios i don't know but even if it's the 4s no, right. even if it well let's just say it's the 4s that's still 4 or 5 years of updates
1: Right. That, well that's still remarkable part of the problem compared with to android i the android and, market share is that a lot of those devices
0: are that old yeah but i would say my experience would be with android you get like two maybe three updates ever and you're good? Yes. Well, that you get two years of updates at best. Well, the, the new change is that you I hope so. definitely get. Right. That would though. be the ideal thing is if they can set the pace with the, with the and release those patches to ASOP right? And then they get Samsung and HTC and LG and Motorola and Sony well, and all those the other. The problem is even, even, even if those guys get Hawaii, it, the problem and, is does Sprint,
1: right? Because Sprint takes the Samsung image and stamps Sprint on it. Right. And and adds the sprint store or whatever. Right. If it's not just the OEM, it's also yeah. the
0: carriers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So yeah. with that many layers in it, it's like here's how you, if
0: Google can force the policy to happen, that'll be a good thing. Here's how you just know that Google Google screwed the pooch on this is and I hate to get I, I always rail on this, but here's the thing. Like Microsoft was able to come to the market and do this better. Microsoft did this better, and Google came to the market, and they just well, it's because unlike the other ones, Google didn't want to make the phones themselves. Right. Well, and Microsoft, uh, but this was before Microsoft made. They didn't own Nokia at the time. They just had a contract that said have these right, minimum requirements, to deliver the system. Yes, completely. exactly. They delivered. They said you you mandatory have to meet these requirements for patches and updates. And then of course Apple took it a step further, and they they said we won't, we will, we refuse to let you have any control over it. And they said no to Verizon. They said no to Sprint. They said no to They said no to, uh, AT&T, and they went to some podunk network called Singular that nobody had ever even heard of that was barely struggling in the market, which is now, which has become AT&T, which is like the number one, the, I'm sorry, the number two right. carrier in the U.S., and in that entire time, they never gave. They said, no, we will deliver the updates directly. Google didn't have right, that same stance, and that right, is the mistake they're repeating. The same mistake partly, they're making with the watches, by the way, I have an LG Watch R, which doesn't get the same updates that all the other Android Wear updates watches get. I I don't get Wi-Fi functionality, and I'm missing a security update on my LG Watch R that all the other Android update watch, update w- watches have gotten updates for, the same fragmentation is happening again in the watch arena, and they're doing nothing about it.
1: Right, but at the same time, would Android be where it was if it wasn't for that fragmentation to allow people to have the different things, right? If, if Google controlled everything and didn't let Samsung go and make a better UI uh, or, you know, some of the different features they've know, done, that, know, just, uh, right. it wouldn't be where it was It's true. Either. That's
0: the catch-22 about the whole that's thing. The
1: kind of, well, the, obviously, the problem with anything even half open source is you get the fragmentation, right? Because everybody thinks they can do it differently or everybody wants their version of it or whatever.
0: Well, and you but, do get things like you get, like, Nox, which is an interesting development, and you get advancements, advancements in fingerprint readers and VR and cameras that, you know, that so right. far...
1: But I guess the, the bigger thing is that the carriers need to not be allowed to fuck with
0: it. Yeah, really, right? That's They're the, the ones
1: that are really the impediment.
0: right. But the f- unfortunately, that's not the trend. I mean, the trend is the carriers are getting to be more entrenched. And, uh, I mean, that's why, I mean, that's, I mean, not to bring in Ting to this, but that's one of the reasons why I'm a Ting customer is because I feel like... Yeah, my when own- I own the phone, there's no Ting firmware on my phone. Right, exactly. Exactly. All right, Mr. Jude, our next story in the roundup comes from Network World. The Belgian government is fishing test. Uh, I'm sorry, the Belgian government fishing test goes off track and yes. into the woods.
1: <laughs> no, uh, so... They were doing this phishing test, you know, we've talked about these before, where you purposely send a phishing email to all your employees, and if they fall for it, you give them remedial training or whatever. Uh, But apparently, it kind of slightly leaked out of the government and hit 20,000 employees of the high-speed train operator uh, in Belgium. That covers, like, all of Europe. So they sent 20,000 employees of a business that's not really related to the government the phishing email as well. (laughs) Love it. Causing uh, lots of people to have interesting issues. Like, with this I, bet,
0: I bet. I bet. I <laughs> bet.
1: Hence the goes off track is yeah. a pun because it was a train company. I got it. I get it. I get it.
0: Nice. Very nicely done. Very nicely done. Hey, you know, if you want to submit to uh, the Roundup or maybe another story, making it in the main news segment, techsnap.reddit.com. That's where you go. There. Also, uh, community feedback, discussion threads. We'll have a thread for episode 226 in there. If you want to give specific feedback for this episode, you know. Something unique to just this episode, put it right there, episode two hundred and twenty-six. And don't forget, you can also join us live. In fact, next week, aren't we doing it? Are we doing a double snap next week, Alan?
1: Uh, yes, we have to because I'm going to the FreeBSD Cambridge Developer Summit the week after.
0: Yeah, so that means it's going to be a effing marathon day. So join mm-hmm. us at eleven a.m. Pacific. That's usually when we start. Go to JupiterBroadcasting.com/calendar. Uh, you'll get all of the uh, scheduling in your local time zone. The robots just. Do it for you on demand. Also, that means we really need your emails because we really need your emails if we're going to do two shows. Oh, my God go over there please jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact I'm begging you we need double double emails because well we got to do double 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 the shows we got plenty of like big stories because like Black Hat and DEFCON are going on so we got a crap ton of news but we really really need your feedback so please send it in go to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact or Well, we're also going to need more roundup stories so please double in on the efforts anything you see that's interesting please go vote I'm asking you because we want to have great great episodes for you guys when we double record And the best way to make that possible is to have You contribute in those ways Contact and the subreddit And that makes a huge difference and also last but not least Subscribe so that way you just get the show Automatically you don't have to worry about when we record Or anything like that just go to Jupiter Broadcasting Look for episode 226 You'll go in there you'll see the download links right below That RSS feeds below that Show notes have everything we talked about in this week's episode of the TechSnap program documented in copious fashion, as Mr. Jude Mm -hmm. often does, which is very, very nice. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.